Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Given the strange and turbulent times that we are living through, Kurt and I decided to reach out to some of our favorite behavioral science researchers and practitioners to get their take on the novel coronavirus pandemic that is shaking the world. These special edition episodes will explore a variety of different aspects of the crisis and our response to each of those aspects through a behavioral lens. We know that you may feel overwhelmed by the crisis already. It seems every news story, every social media thread, every phone conversation that we have is focused on some aspect of the pandemic right now. While the news and updated information are essential, we're going to take a different tact. We want to try to understand the science behind our reactions and our behaviors and how science can help us cope and move beyond the current crisis. In each episode, we talk with a different behavioral science expert and get their best thinking on an aspect of the crisis. So sit back, take a deep breath, and listen to our special series on behavioral science and the coronavirus pandemic. Eugen Dumont is an associate professor of practice in behavioral and decision-making sciences, which is part of the Center for Social Norms and Behavioral Dynamics under Christina Bicchieri's leadership at the University of Pennsylvania. Much of his work is focused around understanding social norms, how they are formed and their impact on our lives, as well as how to apply behavioral science principles to drive change. He was also our host for the Nobeck conference last fall, and he was the star of episode 104. Welcome back to Behavioral Grooves, Eugen. Hey guys, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, we're excited to have you on. So you study social norms, so what is... What is going on? Are, are you looking at this whole crisis through this lens of social norms and how people and leaders are responding to the crisis? Uh, are you looking uh, at how the social aspect is impacting our behaviors? What What do you think is is that perspective? Yeah, so I think these times, the current developments are quite interesting from a behavioral point of view. We see we're on a constant sort of uh, situation of uncertainty and the environment changed very quickly, uh, behavior changes very quickly, and many, many behavioral scientists are currently pushing for quick turnarounds of papers. Almost on the daily, you see new research, new experimental research coming out of, from my colleagues. So, so we our knowledge base um, expands very quickly. And so it's interesting to look at this through the lens of social norms. And I think the way we should start at looking at this is to understand and to make people understand that individual actions can have strong externalities. And I think this is mm. uh, what's difficult to convey nowadays is to make sure that people understand the impact sort of, of the careless behavior that it has on other people, not just on themselves. And it seems to be the case that especially the young generation has trouble with this. It seems that they feel almost invincible in, in, in what they do. And it, it is difficult to convey that there are trickle down effects um, of their behavior, right? And it's not so much that they may or may not be able to get sick at the same rate, but the issue is that they can spread the sicknesses um, quickly um, to onto other people that are you know more endangered than themselves. So I think there's a lot of, to a lot of research to do, especially from the perspective of social norms and understanding how to use uh, this social bullhorn bullhorn of of uh, of people to reach out and to sort of use social media and television uh, and pairing this with social proof and a concept of authority um, to to impact and influence um, the people and make the behavior change. So do you think it could be improved over what we're doing now? Well, so I think I think what's interesting is that we see that many governments try to employ 
uh, these concepts, right? So you, you might have seen these videos from, from famous people who, who tried to reach out and say, look at me, I'm doing this, you should also doing that. Um, and, um, and I think this is, this is something that we should be going forward with, right? We should, we should be using people that are influential. We should use um, television, we should use radio. But the challenge here is how to convey messages that are consistent, how to make sure that people mm -hmm the right messages and that we change behavior consistently and i think the challenge right now is that different governments different different sort of parts try to they try out different messages try out different perspectives and so people get blasted often with uh with information that is inconsistent and so it's unclear to what extent we can successfully change behavior if we don't agree on how to um you know activate those those behavioral changes through consistent messaging you bring up this idea, which is I, I just dawns on me here that you know you we we look to those authority figures sometimes and and those uh, celebrities out there to to kind of take some of those cues from the messaging and the ones that I've seen and and I am definitely not in the target market of younger people here, but the ones that I've seen have mostly been like it's uh, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger and it's you know older celebrities. So is part of the issue in this that maybe because of the younger generation that's out there, the ones that we see out on the beach uh, when they shouldn't be out on the beach altogether, because they don't have maybe some of their role models aren't the ones who are sending these messages or am I? And again, I could be totally wrong on that. Uh, you know, I don't know that, but is is part of it because they're not they don't associate with the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the older generation. And so it doesn't, it doesn't have as much impact. I think you're absolutely right. I think um, social identification paired with authority is what plays a role here, right? And so what we see is, um, and, and other researchers have done this, um, they look at telenovelas and the impact that, you know, creating these, uh, the, these little movies and little TV shows has on people. But what we need to understand is that there's sort of heterogeneity, there are different levels of impact that these things have. So for example, telenovelas might work on, on girls better than on boys, but boys might be more responsive to, you know, a cool Arnold Schwarzenegger sitting in his pool with a cigar because that's something they, they aspire to be. So what we need to, to, to take into consideration is that um, it really plays a role who is sending that message. And authority matters, identification matters, and you might have seen um, recently, there were these videos uh, circulated on social media where uh, Italian mayors were screaming. Uh, they were like recording videos and screaming onto people and trying to tell them what not to do. Um, it's just these are important things where we need to understand that different sources of messaging will have impacts that will will have different impacts on different people. So we can't just use one message and hope that everyone will respond in the same way. So there's opportunities for improvement in this area. There's a lot more opportunity to to expand the messengers, to expand uh, again the social ID as well as the authority figures. Right? Could be social influencers, could be could be celebrities, uh, could be actually leaders, people in leadership currently uh, in government. Uh, right? Right? Absolutely. And I, and I think here's the pitfall of trying to move quickly with behavioral science is that we, we sometimes don't pause to really understand the situation as well, but we try to find quick fixes and hoping it works out for the best. And something that we are concerned with, and especially Christina Bicchieri and her sort of work, is we've, we first need to pause and establish an understanding of what's going on in the environment. We, we need to understand what is the current social norms. Uh, current social norm and before we try to affect this in any any way and i believe that because we we're in this stressful situation of trying to improve everything immediately um too many 
um, too, too many groups and too many too many influences try to influence behavior in the way that they believe works, but it might make things actually worse because now as a as a recipient you have to deal with these conflicting messages. Um, so I think from a social norms perspective, at least, if we want to change behavior, we first need to understand what do people believe, where do they stand, what they think other people do, what are the sort of injunctive, descriptive aspects of a norm before we even think about the type of intervention that we want to run. And if we do it this way, if we first measure and then intervene, we could be much more impactful than starting with intervention and then working backwards and, and seeing what works and what doesn't. So what what do you think can can help? So given uh, you know social norm interventions, what granted this is a new uh, environment we're in, but you know there has been research on this for many, many years. What has been shown to work in the past and what do you think we can bring forward to to apply to the situation today? Yeah, so, so I think that the the point the, so these are incredibly important and good questions. and I think um, it's it's good to understand that changing behavior, especially sustainably, is extremely mm -hmm. challenging, right? So whatever we believe, um, has or no has worked in controlled environments in the lab and online and, and all these environments that so, social scientists like me are using, this might play out completely differently in the real world where things are happening simultaneously, where there's a lot of dynamic. Um, so changing behavior sustainably is extremely challenging. And I believe for a short term, um, interventions like little nudges can be quite effective, right? And there's a lot of great work that shows that you can change behavior quickly if you make certain changes to the environment. And I've seen pictures of uh, of supermarkets um, and I, uh, in, 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 in Scandinavia, and also I have started seeing them here in the US, where uh, the supermarkets put markers on the ground for people to know where to stand and how far, you know, how much distance to keep to the people in front of you. I think these are very easy ways to improve and sort of like improve the situation, reduce the spread. Um, but the question then, of course, is, and that is the discussion within the nudge literature, is this really affecting behavior sustainably or will this fade as soon as you you know maybe remove some of of these things so in reality it's an uphill battle it's an uphill battle and making behavior stick and form new habits um, is 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 challenging and and many great researchers Wendy Wood who is going to be on your podcast is doing great research on that too so so it takes uh, multiple aspects and multiple approaches here and and so developing new routines uh, for that, you need to have proper persuasion. And I think I think for that, it's important first to understand where do we stand as people? What is the norm that we believe is in place? And then try to correct for the wrong beliefs that people have. And in reality, mm. if you only take one approach, so let's say the nudging, and even you know people like Thaler and others, they acknowledge that nudging is just one part of the approach. The UK government thought they could just rely completely on sort of nudging and that everything will go away. And so we have this recent research that I know you guys have seen uh, with Charles Shalvey, where we show that um, nudging itself can sometimes be completely ineffective if the behavior that it tries to change is unobservable to others, right? And mm. so if you try to change behavior with little nudges, but then the actual consequence of the behavioral change is unobservable to others, uh, we found that in our context, you know, it might actually be quite ineffective. Um, so we need more, right? And so what is this more? We need this social edification paired with authority. We need people to tell you uh, what to do and, and how to do that, but that also might not be enough. And so we might need to pair this with institutional enforcement. And I think Michelle Gelfand has put this very nicely and she has this great research on, on tight and loose cultures. And, and her perspective is we need to make maybe the current, the, the US culture in particular, may, need to make it tighter. 
um, you know, disaster prone nations that are extremely successful at fighting Corona right now, like Singapore and Hong Kong, these are historically tight cultures. And so making it a little bit tighter and enforced behavior um, and, and, you know, maybe punish you for misbehaving and imposing social financial uh, penalties is what could help with the situation. And supermarkets have started doing that. Right, you can see this cap on maximums of how much you can pay and, and buy, and the treat of elderly preferentially, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think it moving to that tighter component? A, a lot of governors have moved to a shelter in place, where it's actually now the law of of staying in, except for the you know uh, specifically excluded you know uh, industries and and services that are provided. Uh, do we need to do more of that sooner, in your opinion? And again, I know this is just your opinion, and there's lots of variances around here, but uh, is, is that moving to that tighter control versus that looser control? I think I think this is an important first step, but also, and now we're sort of moving closer to the actual social norms research here, there, there needs to be, people need to understand that there's a distinction to be made between sort of prescriptive and proscriptive messages yeah. and descriptive messages right so and we know there's a lot of research that shows that telling people what to do and how to do it can backfire we know this from the reactance literature we know the moment i don't have kids and then but those who have they might relate um you tell them don't do this and that's of course the first thing they want to do right? so, so you want to test you want to test how far you can you can you can you can get. And so we need to understand that the, the norms literature over and over, and not only the norms literature, but also the peer effect literature, and, and on just different parts of social science have shown that people are looking for signals based on other people's behavior. They're looking for, they, they, they look for what other people do. And why does this usually work better than just telling people what to do is the fact that people often infer what is appropriate to do from what people do. And that's not necessarily mm. the other way around. So if I see you guys staying in and, and just, you know, washing your hands, I might believe that you really believe that this is the right thing to do. But just because you tell me to do something, if you tell me don't smoke, uh, it doesn't necessarily tell me you're not going to follow through yourself and it might just be cheap talk. So, so we need to understand that just telling people the injunctive side of the norm can sometimes backfire because often also people, when you tell people don't do that, people might infer, well, if they have a need to tell me that, maybe other people are not behaving according to those rules. So we need to understand this interplay. You know, several of our guests have brought up World War II as, uh, as a cataclysmic change that had incredible impact on our social norms. And I'm wondering what impact time and duration has on changing social norms because these what's going on with us right now might only last weeks or months possibly although i mean there may be there's certainly a, the effects are very long term compared to a world war ii experience which was years of dramatic global change uh, what do you think about that Eugen? so it comes back to the fact that long-lasting behavioral change after things go back to normal is, is as far as we can tell, difficult. And um, if, if we look from at, at the experience that we have, we can see that research shows that disasters and, and sort of negative experiences like these, they often trigger pro-sociality. They trigger people to behave more nicely, more, more respectful. But the question is, how long does this really... Uh, you know, keep the shape and at what point does it wear off? And what I think we need to consider here is that we need to really try to change 
the norms around certain behaviors that seem odd in Western cultures, but are completely normal in, 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 in other societies. For example, wearing masks. Um, when I was in Japan, um, I, was, I was surprised to see how normal it is for people to wear masks. And they often do it not so much to protect themselves from you, but to protect you from themselves. Right? It's, 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 it's a way of showing respect. And in the US, wearing a mask is still a weird, a weird concept somehow. And I think we should go in the direction of changing these, these norms and allowing people to engage in these behaviors that are beneficial for the society without being afraid that at the individual level, they might be, you know, it, it might look weird or people might not approve of that. Yeah. So again, you're going back to the idea that you said people are looking um, for these signals, right? And so because in the U.S., we you know, the, the only people that we typically see wearing masks are probably people from those countries where it is the social norm and, and for here it isn't. And so, again, not being able to identify with them and not having that. And so to your point, uh, that would be very valuable moving forward, particularly for people who have a, a cold or influenza or something and they have to go out. Those are the types of, of behaviors that I think would be positive in the long run in okay. something like this. But again... Are we likely to go there? Maybe if this lasts a long time and it becomes more that. But to your point, catas catastrophic uh, events like this, behavior changes and then it changes back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are social animals, obviously, right? And we are looking for these signals, And but it, it could be temporarily. We could uh, be adjusting to the environment in which you are right now. And the moment, you know, the moment the curtain is lifted, you can just leave your, you leave your apartment and, and everything goes back to normal. Maybe you stop washing your hands. Maybe you stop, you know, elbowing other people instead of shaking hands. So I believe that um, the norms change, the behavior change, but also the interventions need to change. The interventions that the, the governments and, uh, you know, institutions and scientists are trying out, they need to be adaptable, not only to different environments, but also to different times within the same environment. Yeah. If you were to, if you were to get out your crystal ball, Reagan, <laughs> what, you know, peering into the future, what social norms do you think are going to change? Yeah, that's a great question. I so are you are we talking about long term change, like in in the near future, and that's going to stick in the U.S. Yeah, let, let let's say long term, and let let's say within the U.S. Or I mean, you you you're uh, European born. What uh, where what cultures do, could you look at and say? I think that these changes are likely to occur. I think people will become much more. Um, they will re respond much more carefully to people around them and big gatherings. I think also like hearing people sneeze and cough will be a trigger for a long time. I went to Whole Foods the other day and I and I had to sneeze and and people looked at me like I'm you know I'm, I'm contagious. And, and I think this will last for a while. I think even once things become a little bit more normalized, I think people will still be wary of the things that made them fear and instilled all this fear for a long time. And that includes people sort of physical responses, coughing and sneezing, but also big gatherings of many people that they don't know. Uh, I could imagine shaking hands will be will feel surprisingly odd for a long time. So I, I, I'm, I'm positive that many, unfortunately, that many of these things will go back to where we were before and will set ourselves up maybe for a second wave, a second pandemic. And I hope that's not going to happen. But from, a, from what we know from behavioral change is that short-term behavioral change, yes, long-term behavioral change, um, quite difficult. Yeah. So we have to ask um, because <laughs> we've asked right. a number of other people about toilet paper 
And, and it's and, an important thing. And, 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 but the, the idea of, of a run and hoarding of, of, of toilet paper, uh, I think has, has caught a lot of people. Like it doesn't seem rationally, um, you know, it's, it's not a rational thing to, to necessarily do given the current crisis and everything else. And yet it's happened. Is there any insight from, uh, social norms or social behaviors that you found, uh, that might, put a little bit of light on the reason why this is happening or various different aspects of it. Yeah. So, so I think there is an interesting perspective, um, an interesting norm perspective, and that is sort of the descriptive norms of what we see in the media are important here. And so uh, as far as sort of, as far as I know, one of the first cases of this rush for toilet paper happened in Hong Kong. And it was like in the media, we saw that people were rushing into the supermarkets and there were even armed assaults where gangs were like robbing supermarkets, stealing these toilet papers. Uh, and it's, it's just a very visual thing. And so seeing other people rushing, and as I said, I mean, we are social animals. We see this sort of descriptive change. We see descriptively what people are doing and we infer from that, that you know, hurting behavior will make us go into the same direction, and and we believe maybe we need to respond as well because this is an existential threat. And if all these people are doing it, then we also should respond to this. Um, at the same time, um, there's a lot of misinformation, right? People, um, some of the people that I I talk to, they said, well, you know, they thought maybe there will be a shortage of these things, and it, it, we everything that we know is it's not going to be a problem, but it's just you know people buying bulk. And it's just you need to re-deliver these things. So the misinformation is, and, and the spread of misinformation is a big issue in this whole environment to begin with. That people are learning not only too many things, but also too many wrong things. It's very different, difficult to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong. And so I believe that the initial Russian toilet paper and other things was caused by just seeing these early adopters, and you didn't want to be the one sort of uh, losing out on this. Yeah. So does it go back a little bit to what you were talking to about before, where? You know, seeing people do something is very different than having somebody tell you uh, what to do. And so actually seeing those images of people rushing to get the toilet paper versus, you know, whoever the authority figure or whoever the media is going, you don't need to go and do that, but you're not seeing them not do it. So it has that counterintuitive impact, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I caught myself almost responding in a similar way. I was telling, uh, you know, my friends, like, why do you go out and, and buy the toilet paper? But then when I was in a supermarket myself, I caught myself almost uh, responding to that and buying toilet paper because I thought maybe I should do this as well. So again, you know, the injunctive and the descriptive side of the norms are very different vehicles, right? And just because yeah. you tell people one thing doesn't mean people follow through. Behavior is what's is what's credible in behavior and behaving a certain way is what's expensive. Everyone can just say things, but really following through is, is what counts. And so we are looking for behaviors and behaviors will affect us always, like almost always much more than people just telling us certain things. I like that. Behavior is expensive. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that for a long time, Wigan. So, so what do you think governments need to be doing moving forward obviously this is uh, in some countries in some areas around the globe at a point where it's uh, you know things are starting to get better at other points it is in the midst of it and at other points it's just starting um, what do governments in and do they need to be different in responding in in their response given where they are I think and, and I'm biased here obviously because I'm a social scientist myself I think we need to improve the collaboration between the governments that put certain rules in place 
and scientists who can inform these things. I'm not only talking about epidemiologists and doctors that are all important too, but especially the people who are studying behavior and behavioral dynamics who can inform how a certain rule can change behavior to the worse or to the better. And we need to understand this, we need to test these things. And I have colleagues, some of which are part of the Applied Cooperation Team Act at, at MIT, and they rolled out uh, research with uh, in, in Italy with the government, and they try to understand the work with the governments closely to understand how does how do people respond to certain interventions before certain interventions are being rolled out yeah. and i think we need to do this globally part of that team is now rolling it out globally i think we need the governments need to be open to use insights from science to inform the interventions that they run and if you have too many interventions running at the same time and it's almost as if you have too many cooks and and they all might be well-intentioned interventions but at the end of the day there might be in conflict and people will just respond by you know leaning back and saying i i will you know i will i will just not respond to anything anymore and i will just wait until until somebody tells me something so the government should work with 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 uh, with this with the scientists in a way that they understand which messages to put out and if we have too many messages and too many interventions at the same time it's almost as if we have too many cooks that are trying to improve the dish. And so what we need to do is we need to first understand what the environment is and then and then coordinate on interventions that are that are really going to help the people rather than using a kitchen sink approach and rolling out as many interventions as possible that might have worked in different environments, but the combination of those could be really detrimental. And so I think this has been the challenge with different governments who try to, what they believe to use good interventions, but they use too many conflicting messages and interventions at the same time. And then the response of the people might be such that they cannot respond to anything clearly. And then you you don't achieve the behavioral change for that reason. One of the potential issues in this is obviously there, yes, we need to pause. We need to be able to understand what is actually driving the behavior. Um, I think some of the concern that some people might have is that Social scientists, uh, behavioral scientists, scientists in general haven't necessarily been known to really do things very quickly. And this is a situation that requires, you know, responses sooner as opposed to later in some instances. We talked with Annie Duke, who talked about, you know, we have to put hedges in place, but, you know, the longer you wait on a hedge, the more costly it gets. And so that basically the interventions that we're doing. Given that, what do you, th what do you see happening? Um, in regards to particularly in, in your field, social science, you know, how are they responding to the fact that, yeah, we, we don't have a year in order to study this. We actually have, you know, weeks in order to study this or maybe even less time. Yes. So I, I in, in my experience, and I haven't been a social scientist for, you know, as long as many of my uh, senior colleagues, but I have never seen social science move at a pace the way it does right now. Even, I mean, economics, that's my field where I'm coming from. It's notorious, it's known for notoriously being slow when it comes to peer, you know, peer reviewed publications. Um, now, right now we're seeing both scientists and journals working in tandem and trying to move quickly. So we have seen a number of journals who issued these special call for papers saying, we will review your paper within one week um, and we will make sure that you can get this message out. I've seen, I've seen researchers who publish 20, 30, 40 pages paper within a week of collecting the data. I've yeah. never seen people moving at that speed. Now, there's also the challenge that you bring up which is we also need to make sure that quality control is there. And the scientists that I've seen publishing this, they've also been 
cautious in saying you need to know that this has not been, you know, it, we didn't have time to review all of this. We didn't have time to submit this anymore. We want to show you what we found. Please be critical and analytical about what you read. So I think I agree with you. We need to, it's a trade-off. We need to be fast enough to contain the, the, the issues that we have, but we also need to be able to slow down a little when it comes to big interventions to make sure that we are inter you know, intervening in the right way and changing behavior to the better, as opposed to just changing behavior in the short term and then having to deal with the consequences later. Because in reality, we want to get rid of this thing, not just to slow it down. And so just because it slows down now doesn't mean it cannot accelerate later unless we put the right brakes in place. All right, so again, one last question from me. Uh, there has been a lot of talk um, and, and maybe even evidence that some of our governmental leaders aren't necessarily listening to uh, experts and scientists in this. And uh, and again, I'm not sure if, if there's a social aspect to that. Um, in particular, um, you know, is there a feeding into a, a subgroup because if they do that, then they're seen as, as being kind of aligned with the, the norms of that subgroup, um, various different pieces of that. Uh, just wanting to get your thought as to, are there any things that you can think of why some leaders are not listening to the experts and what's going on with, with some of that? Yeah, so I have a good idea of what leaders you 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 think about. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being a little uh, vague here, but <laughs> yeah. many people might and I, know. And I think I think the first step is to put people in place who actually believe in science. And I think this should be the first step that you have people in place who believe that behavior and and laws and rules can actually be informed by science and not just by gut feelings. So I think this is the first step. But you know, in you know, down the line. Obviously, there's a trade-off for these people. If you have you have an incentive to be reelected, so that you are catering towards what you know in 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 my field it would call sort of the median voter. You try to capture the people who will vote for you. So now you, if those are the people who really want to push one particular agenda, then you try to cater to them, and that might sometimes be even in conflict with what you personally believe is the right thing to do. Now, I don't actually think that this is the big issue here. I believe the issue here is that we have uh, the leaders might be misinformed, and they're also might be not even seeking proper information. They're not surrounding themselves with people who can tell them the truth, but they're surrounding themselves with people who tell them what they want to hear. And then, of course, you can't take the right decisions. And so in that context, um, we need to make sure that Again, the message of social scientists comes out and, and reaches the right people. And many important colleagues in my field have been writing tirelessly op-eds and giving interviews and, and being on TV and podcasts. This is so important what you guys do because this is reaching the people and the voters and the relevant people in, in, in different sort of areas of the government. And they need to take these these insights into consideration. But of course, at the end of the day, the political game is about being reelected. And some people seem to be more prone to risk millions of people's lives um, as opposed to doing the right thing from a scientific uh, and human, uh, humane point of view. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us on Behavioral Grooves today. We really appreciate your insights, your thoughtful, your very thoughtful responses to all these questions and the way that you approach this is always appreciated. Thank you, guys. I'm, uh, I was delighted to, to be part of this. And I hope I wish you for the 2020 no back um, at Penn. And uh, uh, hopefully everything will reopen and back to normal so we can welcome you back to our uh, new workshop.
We would love that. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that things are back to at least a semblance of normalcy at that point and, and that we can actually gather and, and see you face to face as opposed to over just a video chat here. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Oigen. Thanks so much. Welcome to this special edition grooving session, where Tim and I groove on some of the concepts and ideas that were stimulated by our conversation with Oigen. All right, Tim, what stimulated you this time? Well, let's start with social norms differ by age and sort of groups, right? This whole concept is really, to me, was a big, big idea that made me feel like our government, uh, marketers, messengers, people who are getting the message out are missing a huge opportunity to tailor messages in ways that reach different people in different ways because we hear them in different ways. They come from different messengers. They impact us differently. They come in, they get packaged and framed differently. They get primed differently. We are, we're all human beings and we all have the sensitivities to those kinds of things. And I think it'd be really great if the government messaging could be expanded to treat all of these different groups, and not all, but but to break down the big messages into more relevant sound bites. The quote from, from Eugen that I found fascinating is, different sources of messaging will have different impact on different people. So the messenger, and we've talked about this, we've had yeah. behavioral groove sessions on messenger effect. The idea, though, that we need to make sure that we are focusing on that in this time of crisis, as you said, our governments and other agencies that are out there that are trying to curb the, you know, the crisis as it's happening, those are people who need to, to hear this. They are the ones who need to be able to do this. I think it's really interesting, too. He also talked about that we should be using TV and radio and celebrities, uh, everything right. we can in order to really impact the social norms around these behaviors that we need to be doing, particularly as it entails the, you know, staying at home, the way that we interact and social distancing, all of those, we could impact much more uh, succinctly and with better um, power than we could with just nudges alone. Yeah, talk about diversity in messaging. Billie Eilish and Elton John are doing a big live streaming concert. And so to have this teenager messaging to people who are in a very, very different social group than those who listen to Elton John and have both of them in the same environment where they're both sending the messaging around awareness do these things uh, in a live streaming concert, but together, I think is tremendous. And I, I, I love seeing that stuff. Yeah, I think all of those factors come into play. If we can have that consistent message, which was one of the things that was talked about, and getting different celebrities, different authority figures to consistently say the same things that is backed by science, another key piece of what he was saying. <laughs> and how about just agree on what the consistent message should be? Exactly. <laughs> and then all, execute on that. All of those, I think, would be beneficial in this time that we're facing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Kurt? Research needs to pause. Oh, yeah. That was a big piece of what he was talking about. And there's some real value in that, in the idea that if we rush the solutions too quickly, 
we're not sure how they're going to impact and they may backfire. And to understand this idea that, wow, we have to do this research, but we need to make sure that we do it with some quality and that we're not just implementing solutions ad nauseum. Here's one one solution, here's another solution, here's another solution, here's another solution, and we put them all, all in place. They may actually counteract each other, all of these different aspects. So there's a pause that needs to happen, which puts us in this conundrum because there's this need for speed. And we talked with Annie Duke about hedging and the idea that we need to put these hedges in place, these ideas that planning in place, right? We need to start doing things today that will impact us two weeks from now, a month from now, two months from now. And the longer that we wait to put that solution in or that intervention in at this point, the greater the cost or the more likely that that intervention isn't going to have the impact that it needs. So there's this conundrum between pausing the research, which I fully agree with because we can't be rushing and and applying everything that we find from, you know, here day one, day two, day three, without having making sure there's quality checks, there's contextual aspects going on with that. But we also have this need in order to, you know, nip this in the bud right now while we can, and speed is of essence. If we don't do a good job at the, at executing the research, then it will lead us down bad paths, basically. And if we if we rush it too much, we might end up executing things that have really negative effects. And I think about Michael Hallsworth taking a really cool idea that worked in case number one, and then he doubled it again, worked in case number two, just great, and then went into case number three with some slightly different context, and it fell flat. Yes. And that's that's and the consequences weren't nearly what they are. Those were tax letters. You know, this is this is a monstrous, highly sensitive, big, uh, big impact kind of stuff. And we do need to take good care when we're integrating behavioral science into into the messaging, into the solutions, into the execution of all these things. Right. We need to ensure that the research has some quality checks on it. That it's done right, it's designed right, that it is measured right. But we also need to understand the context with when with which that research was done. Makes a was it done difference. in a lab? Was it done in the field? Even looking back at, at research, as he said, you know, we've done a lot of research in labs. Those don't always translate into real world situations, particularly a real world situation such as this, which is so unique. But then we also have to understand that, all right, so is this research finding is it generalizable to a larger population? Right. And then how do we coordinate that? And what are the contexts that we're putting this in? And are those contexts similar? So I think all of those factors come to play as we are thinking through, how do we do this? Okay, what, uh, what else do we want to make sure that we cover today? So the other sentence that Eugen said that I thought was brilliant, and again, it's nothing that's really ground shattering new. It's the basis of social norms research and social science in general is that we look to others to determine what we should do. Yeah, that was fabulous, wasn't it? Man, well, that, that totally engaged me. It was one of the aspects that I think we know that. We know that it's yeah. it's what social psychology is all about. 
but it's also this piece that we forget in this in these times and so we we look to uh it's, it goes back to what we first talked about right it's those different groups and different things but in times of uncertainty we're looking to others to understand how we should behave and so he talks about injunctive norms and descriptive norms and just for mm -hmm. for people who don't necessarily know injunctive norms are those things about what you ought to do so they are the the things of the ways that we should behave the ideas of how we should our attitude should be and what we should be doing right and this is this is my view of what i think ought to be done Right. right. Or, or it could be the societal uh, this is what ideals I think of what the society wants to have happen. Yeah. Uh, it, then there's the descriptive norms, which is our perception of what is. So it's this idea of that's how it ought to be, but this is actually how it's playing out. Mm -hmm. And there are two very different types of norms that we encounter. And as, as Oigden said, injunctive norms are what we often tell people, but we don't always believe them. We don't believe the people saying that. And he used this, the yeah. concept of smoking. You can tell me not to smoke, but if you just tell me not to smoke, but I actually see you smoking, or maybe I don't even have to see you smoking, <laughs> but I might think, well, maybe you go off and smoke behind the, you know, close the door and, and smoke in your apartment. So I don't necessarily believe you in the injunctive norm. However, if I see you, doing things then that sends a, a stronger message and his i his his toilet paper example on that i think is 100 uh part of the reason why people went out and and did this because when people were in the news and and leaders and even you and me going out there and saying don't you don't need to buy toilet paper in bulk you don't need to do that that's an injunctive norm right yeah the descriptive norm is going to the grocery store and seeing that the there's only one roll of toilet paper left on that or seeing the media where they're showing all of these pictures of this. So now I need to go out and I need to go and, and buy because now it has become, this is actually what's happening on the ground. That part I thought was really insightful. And I think the more that we realize that what people are responding to in this crisis are the descriptive norms that they're seeing as opposed to the injunctive norms. That is going to make a big difference in how we need to think about our response. And and Eugen's story, that very personal story that he related was reminiscent, reminiscent of the experience that I had of being in a retail store and looking at the shelves, uh, the bleach shelves were completely barren. Bleach, there was none left. Now, I really don't know why. I mean, because there's lots of other cleaners that were that were actually still on the shelf. There were still a bunch of cleaners that had bleach in them, but bleach itself was completely absent. I thought, oh boy, maybe I should be getting bleach. I mean, that that <laughs> thought just ran through my mind just just at that moment. It was like, oh my, I I can't get any bleach. Maybe I maybe I should have gotten some. Yeah. Uh, but this also reminds me of Christian Hunt reframed this or rephrased this by uh, by talking about don't outsource your critical thinking. Right? Yeah. So, uh, or or Caroline Webb, when we talked to her, is like, don't stop your your system too. Make sure your deliberate thinking remains engaged, because it's hard. 
it takes more energy, it takes more calories and more effort for us to engage our system to our more deliberate thinking. And it's just a lot easier to watch what other people are doing and just do it. Well, it's the natural way that we respond, right? Yeah. And we got lots of years of DNA informing our brains that it's a successful way of getting along. But it's not necessarily the best thing right now. Yes. Any last thoughts? Well, can we just say that when he said our policy, our when he said our policy should be driven by science, can we just reiterate that? Because, oh my gosh, we need to. We just, we would be so much better uh, if we just paid more attention to to science. And I know that we're, we're talking to the choir, but yeah. doggone it, uh, it would just be so, well, our, I think our lives could just be so much better. Yeah. And just a little editorializing by me here, if we all agreed that science should be what we're driven by in our policy and various different aspects of this. Right now, I'm really concerned with what I'm seeing in different factions coming out of mostly around politics of this and our response. And they're doing, they're responding with political motives as opposed to looking at the science in my belief. That's just me editorializing. So again, if we could agree that the science should be leading this charge, that we should be exploring what the science says and the best way to do it based on the best information that we have at this point. And that information is changing. We need to be able to change our positions and our approaches based on the latest and greatest information. That's what scientists do. And I think right now that's not happening. And so I agree 100%. Our reaction should be driven by the science. And I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but the great response by smart people, when you ask them the question, when did you learn something new? What was the last time you learned something new? They'll say maybe this morning or yesterday. And people who are not so smart say, I don't know, it's been a long time. And I'm not trying to throw stones, but merely to point out that really a smarter way of doing this is to think about how we can learn something new every day in this crisis. Yeah. Ignorance isn't bad as long as you're willing to learn. As our friend James Brewer said, something of that sort. <laughs> Not exactly. <laughs> pretty, pretty but close. It was, it was something along that line. And I think that is one of the best lessons that we can take from this. Thank you for listening to the special episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope that you found it interesting and insightful. If you liked it, please let others know. We think that the topic is important, and maybe we can help in educating people about how behavioral science can help us all out in this current craziness that we are going through. Also, please let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas that would be helpful or that we could share. You can reach us through the Connect tab on the Behavioral Grooves website at www.behavioralgrooves.com or through Twitter. I'm at T. Houlihan, and Kurt is at What Motivates. We really do love hearing from you, and this topic is one that spurs lots of emotions and thought. As part of our mission, we want to expand and inform the community of people who think about positively applying behavioral science to life. 
One way that happens is through leaving reviews. If you think this podcast is beneficial and should grow, we would really appreciate to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast server you use. It only takes a few minutes and goes a long way to boost us in the algorithms that are used to generate search results. Also, please check out the show notes. We are linking to a number of resources articles, podcasts, newsletters that we vetted to bring good facts and ideas around COVID-19 and the coronavirus, its impact and ways that we can help slow down the spread. There is a lot of information that's being pushed out to everyone each day, and we are weeding through it to find good stuff so that you don't have to. We truly appreciate you listening. Now go out and wash your hands. 